Stanford University. Uh, let me uh, uh, introduce our tonight's speaker, uh, Professor Fazini Vajdani, who is truly of uh, a remarkable new generation of scholars who have emerged uh, and are doing uh, incredible work in different fields of social science, literature, culture, anthropology. He is uh, a Yale uh, graduate who is now teaching at the University of Arizona. His field of study is historiography. Uh, he is uh, truly uh, in the forefront of the effort to apply modern theories of historiography and modern theories of historical research to what we are told in the Iranian vernacular is history. What, what we think of history is not actually history, it's more like fairy tales or it's more like memoirs or it's more like ideology. But uh, this generation and uh, Professor Narzin uh, amongst them uh, are trying to apply these methods and I think the results of their works are beginning to come out, not just about the historiography of today, but some of the past historiography, the work of Julie Maysemi, for example, beginning to uh, look at earlier uh, works of serious historiography. I have uh, been talking to uh, uh, Professor Rajdani for a few uh, minutes before, and uh, I found it immensely uh, both uh, enjoyable and uh, his conversation erudite, and I'm sure you will find. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Milani, for that very kind introduction. Uh, so let me start with, uh, with a little anecdote. Uh, in April 1912, Russian troops bombed the shrine of the eighth Shi'i Imam in Mashhad while pursuing Iranian nationalists taking refuge there. Uh, and and here's, an, here's an image of what the shrine in Mashhad looked like after this bombing. You can make out some of the cannon balls that uh, kind of penetrated uh, the, the dome there. Uh, over the course of the ensuing weeks, the Russians sought out and terrorized suspected nationalists, leading to a general popular outcry. In fact, in one of the histories of the period, they talked about this event as a second Karbala. Uh, for many, the violation of the sanctity of the shrine by a foreign power was one, one among several similar events characterizing the Iranian constitutional revolution and post-revolutionary period in which foreign occupation and the reassertion of local and provincial forces were commonplace. Uh, the history of early 20th century Iran has typically been narrated as a history of events uh, consisting of political milestones, protests, uh, and battles. Less has been said about the day-to-day -day experiences of ordinary people in the midst of such upheavals. So what might a history of everyday life, a history of non-events, if you will, look like in such momentous times? The goal of the history of everyday life as an approach is to de develop a more qualitative understanding of ordinary people's lives, which includes the inner world of popular experiences in the workplace, the family, and the household, and the neighborhood. Uh, it does not seek to exclude the influence, power, and privilege of elites, but rather recognize the lines of discontinuity and fissure between and within classes and social strata. 
So what I'm going to do uh, in this presentation is use a Mashhad police newspaper called Etelote Yomie to talk about some of the patterns of solidarity and conflict um, and, and, and uh, amongst individuals and the uses of spaces uh, and the nature of crime over this 1913 to 1914 period uh, in Mashhad. And I want to say a little bit about uh, Etelote Yomie. Uh, this is a newspaper that, uh, that is, is very much a unique source. I stumbled across it while uh, digging around in uh, Princeton's library collection. And what's so unique about it is that it, it is pretty much dedicated only to reporting on uh, crime. It doesn't have any editorials. It doesn't have any other sort of op-ed pieces or uh, telegraphs about news from abroad or what have you. It, it pretty much just reports on crime and was published on a daily basis for roughly a one-year period. I wasn't able to access all of the, all, uh, all of the um, issues, but uh, quite a few of them. And so as a result, uh, you, know, you, you get a very different view of everyday life from this newspaper. And I think the timing of the publication is important. It came out in 1913-14, and I really see it as directly linked to what I talked about uh, with the Russian bombing in Mashhad. Uh, and the reason is, prior to the bombing of the shrine, the Russians forced the local police, the Nazmiya, to disarm, effectively robbing them of their ability to carry out their duties. So in a way, the publication of the newspaper could be seen as a way of regaining uh, public confidence uh, in, in sort of the, the, the function of the police. Right. And so one of the stated goals of the newspaper that I found in, in this precise issue, uh, the editor, who unfortunately I haven't been able to track down, says what, the goal of the newspaper was to reveal improper behavior, ugly and ignorant acts, and unseemly actions, and to reveal them to the general population. And in so doing, he invoked the Islamic principle of, quote, commanding the good and forbidding the wrong, amr bimaruf vanai as believing that there was a social benefit to uh, revealing these unseemly acts. Um, and he believed that as a result of his newspaper, there had been a decrease in crime. And I'm somewhat suspicious of this. Uh, you know, so, you know, we have to take it with, uh, with a grain of salt. And so this newspaper, Etelote Yomie, like any other historical source, was not without its biases, right? We know little about the selection process involved in crime reporting. Um, instances of police corruption in the form of bribery and extortion were pretty much absent in these accounts, although we know that this was an endemic problem uh, in, in sort of the Qajar um, police. And the relationship of the police to the judiciary in, these, in this newspaper is also somewhat clear, uh, unclear, sorry. The, the Qajar judiciary can, can best be described as very pluralistic. There wasn't a centralized and, and organized and uniform legal system to crime uh, to try criminal and civil cases. So there were shahr courts in which personal status law uh, cases were brought before there, and then there was customary orf courts which addressed various offenses against the state, such as rebellion, embezzlement, theft, and drunkenness. Uh, and my sense is that many of the cases uh, of these types of cases never made it to Etelate Yomia because there were alternative forms of adjudication, even beyond the Shar and the, uh, and the Orf courts, right? So you can think of, for example, uh, crimes that would have occurred within a particular tribe might have been adjudicated by a tribal elder, 
or a crime that would have occurred within a particular guild or a workshop would have been educated by the guild master. And so there's a lot that I think is, is left out of these accounts. Um, but, but what I find very fascinating about this is precisely who ends up showing up in these police reports. It's precisely, I argue, the people who are unable to bribe their way uh, to get a, form, a, a, a kind of favorable ruling through these other mediums, right? So it's people without a particular, you know, uh, high-status family background or a rich merchant or a bureaucratic family. Uh, so, so that's that's that that's great in terms of social history, right? Because it it gives us a different view. Uh, I want to say a couple of things about the punishments because another way to look at this crime newspaper would be to try to figure out what the pat patterns of, of punishment are. And unfortunately, for the most part, it doesn't elaborate too much on the punishments. It usually involves an unspecified detention period. Uh, and in cases of theft, they say something about uh, returning the stolen item or forcing them to give compensation for stolen items. Uh, but we do have cases of punishment that functioned as what I call to be spectacles of deterrence. Right? So in one case from the neighboring town of Sabzevar, government authorities nailed two thieves to separate gates of the city as a warning to other potential criminals. Uh, in, in a case from Mashhad, the Mashhad police decided that jewelry thieves, in one case, should be introduced to traders and people uh, and, um, in, in the bazaar and have their stolen goods displayed on a tray. And so the main culprit, Aha Mustafa, carried a large tray in the Sarshur Bazaar where he, quote, kissed the tray of things in the presence of all the tradesmen and onlookers and with two hands presented it to Hajj Ali Akbar, the owner of the goods, with complete propriety and contrition, Adab uh, Vamazerat. So, so having said something about, about this, this kind of broader context, uh, let me turn now to a uh, little bit of history about Mashhad as a sacred space. Located in the eastern province of Khorasan, Mashhad has its beginnings as a shrine city for the eighth Shi'i Imam Ali al-Riza bin Musa, although its name only appears uh, in sources dated from the 10th century onwards. As a site of 12 or Shi'i pilgrimage, Mashhad became the hub of a religious economy, particularly over the 15th century when the Timurids encouraged agricultural activities as part of the shrine's uh, endowment. And Maria Subtelny has written a great work on sort of the uh, agro-economic dimensions of, uh, of these activities. And the Shi'i Safavid dynasty that came after it was even more invested in promoting Mashhad as a pilgrimage site in the subsequent three centuries. Uh, and, and so by the time that we sort of get to the Qajars, Mashhad was, was revived as a, as a Shi'i pilgrimage center. And I think the temptation in studying pilgrimage centers is to see religiosity and sanctity as the overriding feature of daily life. Uh, as Abdullah Hamoudi has observed in his ethnography of the Hajj, uh, however, commercial haggling, corruption, and conflict are as much a part of the lived experience of pilgrimage as the performance of religious rites and the search for transcendent meaning. And so juxtaposing the presumed sanctity of Mashhad with daily illicit activities forces us perhaps to rethink the relationship between the sacred and the profane. Uh, and so I'd like to say a, a little bit about the, the geographical features of Mashhad. Uh, as you can sort of see, there's a, there's a main street that 
cuts across it, which is just known as Khiyaban or street. Uh, the upper half is known as Balakh Khiyaban, upper street, and the and the lot uh, the the the, um, the 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 sort of the lower half is Khiyaban uh, Epain, uh, right, or kind of the lower street, right. So you sort of you have you have the street broken up uh, along those. Uh, along those lines, and you have a, a citadel, an arg, uh, located in the southwest of the city, with guard houses scattered throughout the city. Uh, one of one of the major features of Mashhad, which is common common to other Islamic cities as well, is that you have neighborhoods, major neighborhoods that bear the name of uh, of the gates of the city. And so, in Mashhad, the six major neighborhoods. Are eight Ga, Sarshur, Sarab, Nohan, Pine Khiyaban, and Balakhiyaban. And wealth was concentrated in the less populated western part of the city. Now, the reason for that, uh, the reason for the concentration of the wealth in the western part of the city, has to do with, uh, with water. And so, Mashhad being a, a, a kind of a, generally an arid, uh, in an arid uh, region of the country, relied on qanats, on these kind of uh, underwater aqueducts that would deliver water to the city. And so the most affluent new, uh, neighborhoods are precisely the neighborhoods that are closest to the water. Right? And one of the things that I realized in looking at this newspaper is that it's precisely in the, in the least affluent newspaper, uh, least affluent neighborhoods that you see the most instances of crime being reported, which again tells you something about the bias of you know, the police and, and, and the person reporting on it. Uh, and, and the neighborhood itself is, I think, an important part of the, uh, not only basic, uh, basic administrative unity, but also a basic element of collective urban identities. So we have accounts by other scholars of how oftentimes there were rivalries between various neighborhoods. In Esfahan, for example, you would have, uh, you know, one part of the town that was considered to identify with the Haydaris and another part of the town that was identified with the Nematis, and they would have a series of conflicts along those lines. And you see this pattern occurring again and again, and I don't think Mashhad is necessarily uh, an exception to that. Um, and so each crime would be referred to a local police station. I wasn't able to find a picture of the Mashhad police, but here, here are, uh, here's a, a picture of uh, the the commissariat of Tabriz, of two, two neighborhoods in Tabriz, so you get a sort of sense from roughly the same period what, what they would look like. Okay, so let me return now to, uh, to pilgrimage and the crimes related to pilgrimage. Here's a, you know, a, a snapshot of typical pilgrims on their way to Mashhad uh, from, from a sort of 19th century travelogue, Western travelogue. Uh, so a group, uh, one of the stories that I found was a group of Shirazi pilgrims who were traveling on the road to Mashhad when one of their wealthy companions, Qadam Ali Shirazi, had the sizable sum of 83 tomans and 7 garans stolen from him by, by a certain Ibrahim Kermani. Uh, the pilgrims complained to the Mashhad police who caught this evil-doing fellow traveler, Hamzafari Badkar, and compelled him to return the stolen money to its rightful owner. Occasionally, we have cases of a pilgrim robbing a local resident. 
Qulam Ali Khan Vakil Bashi, a man of independent wealth and in charge of the cavalry, opened his door, uh, the doors of his home to a pilgrim named Sayyid Jalal when the latter fell on hard times, perhaps as an act of charity to this descendant of the Prophet. When the host left his home momentarily, Sayyid Jalal repaid his hospitality by taking 116 tomans from his purse. Uh, the thief fled but was caught in the town of Sharifabad and all the money except for two qirans was recovered. Uh, so part of what I'd like to say is that far from being a purely religious rite, erasing socioeconomic differences, pilgrimage highlighted some of the wealth disparities in the form of theft in and around Mashhad. And I think the, the uh, pilgrimage economy of Mashhad can't really be disassociated from agrarian and pastoral uh, economic activities of its environs. So one of the things that we hear a lot about is livestock and animal boundary on the roads to and from Mashhad. So uh, in one of the cases, a man by the name of uh, Dad Khuda was transporting his goods from Mashhad to the village of Hassanabad when he reached a mulberry tree. Two bandits stopped him and stole two of his donkeys along with their load. A year later, he saw a donkey in the bazaar and complained to the local police. After investigation, the police ascertained the culprit was Hossein of Nishapur, a servant of the famed highway uh, bandit, Naib Hossein Akashani. Uh, so you sort of, you know, here's just a kind of visual image of, of how, you know, there would be transport of goods uh, in and around Mashhad uh, from this period, you know, kind of caravans, donkeys with their loads. Um, and so you have a lot of these Re, uh, reportings on bandits. There's a daring um, heist of 160 lambs of, of a certain wealthy Karbalai uh, Vali Timuri, um, and, and the police talk about how they were able to recover a lot of these stolen properties afterwards, uh, but you never hear in these accounts how the bandits saw themselves or how they might have been seen by local townsmen, right? Whether they would have been seen as uh, Robin Hood-like rebels taking from the rich and giving to the poor. So, so, of course, you know, sometimes it's very hard to recover the voices of the people being reported on, but at least we get to hear something about them and we can, we can read these sources, I think, critically. Uh, so if the roads connecting pilgrims and bandits to Mashhad marked spaces of crime based on pathways in and out of the city, the streets uh, constituted the main arteries within it. Unlike many other spaces, streets were a mixed gender space frequented by people of all ages engaged in a number of daily activities such as coming to and leaving work, visiting friends, frequenting hammams and mosques, and shopping for daily necessities. Uh, and so street crimes were usually transgressive deviations from neighborhood ideals of propriety, the prime example of which would be drunkenness, debauchery, gambling, and violence. And so those caught in the street engaging in drunken and disorderly conduct were generally not affluent. I did, however, find an exception. There was a certain Mirza Hassan. Uh, the police apprehended him drunk on on Bala um, Khiyaban, remember, in that more affluent neighborhood, during the fasting month of Ramadan, and imprisoned him for a few days. To prove his remorse, he offered the handsome sum of 800 tomans for the repair and upkeep of, of the Astana Quds shrine, that first slide that I showed you, which was probably very welcome, given the fact that it probably needed a lot of repair after that event. Uh, his generous gift may have mitigated a much longer sentence or harsher 
punishment. This is indicative of how bribery affected punishments, since we do not hear about non-elites being treated so mercifully. Uh, seeking to reform his life and show, quote, penance for these ugly acts, he set out for pilgrimage to Mecca and Medina. Many months later, however, he was caught drunk once again, this time not in the streets, but in the house of one of his uh, friends, a certain Baghair, and, you know, he was, he was brought to the police station again. Uh, apparently, he tried to bribe the police, but to no avail. The fact that the report mentioned the bribe and the police refusal to take it points to perhaps the public confidence uh, function of the newspaper, co confidence building function of the newspaper, and it might also suggest that Mirza Hassan was not generous enough in his uh, bribe. So, so the police more frequently apprehended artisans and apprentices for drinking in the streets. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a case of uh, Hassan the shoemaker and uh, Ibrahim the skinner who, was sta uh, this, who were standing drunk outside the gate of Poin uh, Khiyaban, uh, again, this less affluent neighborhood, with Akbar, an apprentice grocer, when a fight broke out and the two former started beating on the ladder. Uh, <coughs> Here's what a, what a shoemaker from that period would have looked like, uh, Um and there's, and there's many cases uh, of, of, of similar activities. Another, another case also from the same neighborhood involved Hassan the paint maker and Hossein, who were de detained for drunk behavior at 2 in the morning. Uh, the two men had blocked a child from passing in the street and were molesting him when the police intervened. In another case, Muhammad Khan violated the Sharia by looking at, quote, female suspects brought into the station, presumably prostitutes, and was punished by being exiled from the city. Both these instances point to the violation of publicly accepted norms of propriety, the first through the harassing of a child, and the second through a lack of respect for norms regulating public gender interactions. Uh, and closely related to precisely this type of priority was gambling. The police feared that gambling threatened respectable ways of earning a living. So we hear of Bala Araye Teflisi, a non-Mashadi, judging from his name, who established a roulette machine in the rich neighborhood of uh, Bala Khiyaban near a park. The roulette machine was caused to, quote, uh, cause the purse of stupid people to be emptied. Uh, until the police decided to, to ban all such activities, fearing that it would become widespread and would deter people from gaining a, a proper livelihood. Um, and so one of the things about these transgressive behaviors in the streets that I want to point to is that the police would have been regularly monitoring the streets. So this was, this was you know, a kind of the police beat, and so they would have, they would have been able to, to pick up on, on the, these types of activities. Now I want to switch to a slightly different type of space, and that is the coffee house. Uh, the coffee house became an important leisure activity for a broad section of Qajar society, including soldiers, civil servants, artisans, and apprentices. The Qajars often viewed the coffee house with suspicion, and there are several instances through the course of the 19th uh, century in which coffee houses were being closed for illicit activities. Police reports in Mashhad marked coffee houses as dens of vice, fesad, and disorder, binazmi. Soldiers were often involved in coffee house business, especially when state salaries failed to provide a comfortable living. So in Mashhad, a Cossack soldier opened his coffee house in the Eidgah Bazaar, where drinking and gambling uh, reportedly occur. 
here employees of two state institutions, uh, bank gendarme and an employee of the Ministry of Finance, engaged in a bout of drinking and gambling that ended in them coming to blows, and, and the, the other members of the gendarmerie jumped in to, to in the fighting. Um, and so frustrated with such disorder, the police informed the Cossack commanders about the Cossack's coffee house in the hopes of shutting it down for being the cause of disorder. And I think what this points to, and I, and I found several cases of this, of how various repre representatives of, of the armed apparatus of the state could come into conflict with one another and how you know, it, would, it would probably be very important for the police to want to make sure that you, know, you don't have the gendarmerie and the Cossacks and, and all of the and, you know, various tribal uh, elements coming to blows in places like the coffee house. Um, and the coffee house, just like the street, was repeatedly mentioned as a space for illicit sexual encounters. The police arrested Hossein, the proprietor of a coffee house located in the Citadel Square, Maidane Arg, uh, because of regular crimes committed in his establishment. He, along with Ghulam Ali, brought a young man by the name of Muhammad Taqit to the coffee house, began drinking, drinking heavily, and wanted to engage in, quote, certain acts with him when the police caught wind of their activities and arrested the two older men. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's not spelled out in these reports, but you can figure out from the context what's going on. Uh, and, I, and my sense is that, you know, if illicit sex behind closed doors was not necessarily regulated and would have uh, probably enjoyed a level of social acceptance, but it's when it's done in this very public space that it becomes a concern for the police and you have them sort of intervening. Uh, and, and I think the... Another thing that comes through in these reports is that there's a close connection between the consumption of alcohol and the coffee house. Rarely do we hear a rationale for drinking, but in one case, I found that, that uh, Muhammad the carpet weaver went to a local coffee house uh, in, in, uh, in, in the Pine Khiabon neighborhood and, and was, was caught drinking there. And during the course of the police interrogation, uh, they recorded that after the work of weaving carpets, he drinks and frequents the coffee house in order to clear his head and have a little fun. Uh, and, you know, oh, let me just, this slide didn't turn out all that well, but here, here's another slide of a coffee house, and you, you kind of get a sense of the very elaborate murals, uh, and, and oftentimes there's a lot of storytelling that's, in, that's involved alongside these murals, and dancing boys and a lot of other activities that could occur, uh, both accepted and unaccepted in some ways. Uh, and here's, a, here's a, a, an image of probably some of the types of people that are in these reports, right, these apprentice carpet weavers. So after a long day of this very repetitive activity, some of them felt the need to go visit the local coffee house. Uh, and so I think this, his, this testimony that I just read reinforces the idea that the coffee house was a leisurely space for young men seeking, seeking distractions from the daily rhythms of work. Um, now, if we switch to uh, another very important public space, the bazaar, we see that oftentimes the crimes that are committed there have more to do with theft and violence, uh, which, which is rooted sometimes in the scarcity of resources and the importance of space in the bazaar. Uh, and, and so there's, 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 there's many instances of violence centering around this use of space. 
For most of the Qajar period, the maintenance of order in the bazaar would have been the domain of the market police, the Darugheya Bazaar, but the police had taken over this function, the modern sort of uh, police institutions. So in the bazaar, along with the workshops, uh, is where you sort of see masters and apprentices forging communal solidarity through daily work. So it's through those interactions. But we do also have cases in which this solidarity breaks down. So a master in a position of power could compel his apprentice to engage in acts that he might not otherwise want to engage in. Uh, In one of the cases, Karbalai Hassan, the apprentice of Mirza Ali Akbar, the grocer, made a formal complaint about his master, saying that, quote, Mirza Ali Akbar, along with Ali and his other apprentices, were drinking, and they insisted that I drink and smoke hemp water pipe, but I refused and escaped. Uh, And after investigation, the police determined that this grocer was engaging in other undisclosed illegal activities, uh, and so they sort of punished him as a result. Um, Occasionally, we hear about tribesmen and soldiers uh, in in these reports, and although they didn't work in the bazaar, they were involved in its commercial activities. This was also a very interesting element uh, that, that kept on emerging, especially with soldiers. Right? There's this idea in which the, the state salaries that they're receiving aren't sufficient for them to be able to, to have a comfortable life. And so they're involved in the life of the bazaar. And you could see why it would be very handy if you're a merchant or, or someone in the bazaar to have a friend who's armed uh, to, to help you out in a time of need. Right, so there's an instance of a Baluch cavalryman who was selling a carpet to Jamshid, the, gu- uh, the gunner, Tupchi, uh, when they began arguing. Jamshid's business partner, Hassan Marandi, the peddler, uh, who had his goods stretched out on the market, intervened in the argument by stab- stabbing the Baluch with his dagger. This led to a brawl with the Baluch cavalrymen and gunners uh, starting, starting to, to fight until the police interjected and detained um, detained Hassan. Like the previous instance involving violence uh, in the, with the Cossack and the coffee house, the bazaar was a space in which representatives of these various armed elements of society could quickly come into blows. Uh, arguments and violence in the bazaar were often directly related to the contestation of space. And one of the things to keep in mind is that the most sought-after shops were typically located in the center of the bazaar and were obtained through a process of negotiation between various merchants and guildsmen. Itinerant uh, peddlers were usually free to sell their wares in open spaces, but this was not always uncontested. So Ghulam Hussein Tabrizi, an apprentice carpet weaver, was arguing with uh, Sadeh and the Eid Ga Bazaar when a green grocer tried to remove the two men from the front of his store, right? You don't want these two hoodlums uh, fighting in front of your store, right? So you try and get rid of them. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, he's, he, the, the Ghulam Hussein sta- uh, stabs Hussein and runs away before being detained by the police. Mm. And so you sort of see how the use and contestation of space was intimately related to the ensuing violent conflict. Another case illustrates this point even more clearly, uh, involving a liver, uh, liver kebab seller who started yelling obscenities at a fruit seller, insisting, insisting that he remove his transportable stand from the middle of the bazaar. Let me just give you a, a, a visual of what that might look like. This is a, this is a, a liver kebab seller, right? So you sort of see it's just kind of, he's, he's got his, 
He's got his stuff out there. And, and very quickly, you know, if someone feels as though very territorial about that space, you can have a conflict that ensues. And so the, the police find the two men stuck together and, and, and separate the, the two parties from one another. Now, I'd like to shift from these public spaces to more private spaces of, uh, of, of, of conflict. And neighborhood crimes usually reveal some of the fissures between siblings, spouses, extended family, and homeowners and renters. The police rarely went into homes without a complaint or suspicious activities drawing them into this presumably private space. Now, I have to kind of say that the line between private residential homes and public workspaces wasn't always that sharp. And the reason is because a, a typical home during this period could also have rooms for a workshop, a distillery, or a storage area for other commodities. Here's, what a, here's an image of what a house uh, in, in Mashhad would have looked at, at around this time. And you sort of see that there are various rooms. And it's probably more than enough for just one family. So you rent out the other rooms maybe to some tenants. And maybe if you have a little bit of extra income, you set up uh, some sort of a, uh, a, a loom inside the home, right? So, you, you know, you, another, another this, could, this, this could be um, either the inside of a home or it could be a workshop in, in, in the bazaar. Uh, it's, it's unclear, but you, you, would have, you would have these rooms being set up within the private sphere of the home as well. And so we have these cases of Mirza Jafar, an individual with a silk-making workshop, uh, and also a distillery, in the Eidgah neighborhood, who's, who one of his silk weavers complains of illegal activities there uh, after being hit on the head by a thief with the, with the butt of a revolver. Um, so, so the police would, would maybe become aware of some of these activities as a, as a result. And it gives us a, a great window into you know, what different uses for the home we see. Um, and probably the most, uh, one of the more typical types of conflicts we see are uh, daily conflicts between husbands and wives. And what, I, what you can also learn from these sources is the types of recourse that women would have uh, against their husbands when they were unhappy with them. And so in, in one instance, we hear of yelling and screaming coming from a house uh, in which the police goes in and finds a husband and wife fighting uh, when, when the husband hits the wife over the head with a sugar crusher, knocking her unconscious, Khan Shekan. Um, we don't hear what happens after this. But in other instances, the, the, we, we, we kind of hear how the police react to these instances of domestic conflict. So Muhammad Rahim, the drover, Chubdar, uh, complained to the police that his wife had escaped to Mashhad. Investigations revealed that the husband was, quote, holding his wife as a servant, uh, and that she had escaped because of her hu uh, husband's constant violence and harassment. Leaving her children, leaving with her children, she hoped that by coming to Mashhad, she would be free of, of her husband's harassment. Um, and, and what it says is that in making the police, in making their decision about this instance, consulted the Sharia and decided that to have the two parties speak with one another until, quote, the conditions of happiness for the poor woman was arranged. Right. The report ended on a sympathetic note uh, to the wife's plight, but it's unclear whether the police were able to provide her any further redress. It just basically sounds like they said, okay, now you have to reconcile. Uh, and, there's, and there's even stranger instances 
one of the one of the strangest instances and one that's that's serialized uh, was was a was a case of attempted poisoning, uh, in which uh, Haji Hassan had been stricken with melancholia, so die for some time, and one night he asks his wife to make dinner for him uh, while he has a guest over, and as he bites into the first morsel of, of the stew, the choresh that she had prepared for him, he found it bitter and having an unusually sharp effect on his mouth. And so he, he refers this to the local um, policeman, and after further investigation, the Haji's wife claims that her daughter, uh, that uh, that her neighbor, a certain Haji Mirza Ismail Abdul Hussein, wanted her to divorce her husband for the past year with the intention of marrying her. So you know, there's a bit of drama there. Um, several days before the crime, he approached her while she had been shopping and gave her a wrapped paper package saying, "Put this medicine in the food of the Haji, and he will recover," which she then proceeded to do. Uh, the police determined the white powder uh, medicine was actually a deadly poison, a mix of strychnine and magnesium. Uh, further investigation showed the woman sought divorce from the haji some months earlier and even found a deputy who could divorce her according to the rules of the sharia. But as in the previous case of, of a woman seeking divorce or separation, the commissar returned the wife to her husband when she complained about the separation. So you sort of see this act of desperation and how it connects to this unhappy uh, domestic uh, case. Uh, and, and it seems as though women of foreign nationality had a further form of redress. So Abdul Hamid Khan was married to a Russian subject named Kamalov when they moved to Mashhad. After some time, he decided to want to leave uh, to Mashhad, but she wanted to stay. She petitioned the Russian consulate and was consequently granted a separation. Right? So it seems as though she had uh, by bringing in a foreign sort of power into the mix, she was able to, to come to a ruling that was uh, more favorable to her. Um, and conflicts were not always restricted to husbands and wives. Homeowners and renters were often at loggerheads about their living arrangements. So uh, there's, there's one very tragic case in which uh, a, a, a wife uh, of... of a wife and her four-year-old daughter were sitting beneath a low-heated table, a corsi, with a tea maker, samovar, on top of it. And the wife of the, the, the landowner came in, or sorry, the, the homeowner came in, entered the room in a harsh manner and insisted that she move out immediately for not paying the rent. Uh, the wife of, uh, the, of, the, of the, the renter in this case pleaded for two days of respite, but the... the the woman of the house refused and instead violently lifted the sheet on top of the corsi, causing the boiling water to burn the small child from head to toe. The child died shortly thereafter. After investigation, the wife accepted the details of the story but blamed the tenant for, for, the, boiling, uh, for the tipping over of the samovar. And so fearing a negative judgment, her husband paid 12 and a half tomans in order to persuade the tenant to sign a release saying that she would no longer have a claim against, uh, against them for the death of the child. Right? So again, you sort of see there's, there's some sort of negotiation and adjudication that occurs perhaps outside of strict uh, law. Um, theft more generally uh, of, of items inside the house uh, are an invaluable index for everyday material objects. 
uh, repeatedly stolen items from homes provide us with a unique window into the social life of things. This is an idea that Arjun Apadura and others have developed. Um, and, and so I'm interested in the conditions under which they were trans, uh, transformed from items of private consumption to commodities reintroduced to arenas of economic exchange. So Abbas, the son of Muhammad Gonabadi, was a well-known thief. During a, a stealing spree, he stole the fi- following items from the houses of several neighborhoods. Uh, a hammam bowl, a new copper ewer, shoes and boots. Uh, in one comical case, Rostam, described as a crazy thief, Dos de Divonet, had a penchant for repeatedly stealing women's atlas cloth pants from the house of Muhammad Gandahari. Uh, and in some cases, you have instances of food being stolen from the kitchen. Uh, and stealing food, I think, should be seen within the broader context of scarcity in the, in, in the years leading up to and, and during the First World War. Uh, Ostad Muhammad, the carpet weaver, had guests over one night. When his wife went to bring the pot filled with meat, they were embarrassed to find the pot had disappeared. The police found the empty pot in a nearby coffee house where three uh, hungry apprentice carpet weavers had taken the pot there and devoured its contents. So you sort of see how the master carpet uh, weaver may have been, you know, sort of robbed by by his apprentices. And this this these crimes in the home of, of people who were familiar to the homeowners happen again and again. Uh, usually, affluent members who are either, you know, someone like this uh, this individual or others who had government jobs um, who are being robbed by. By, by sort of laborers within the home. So there was one instance in which Mirza Hedayat complained that someone has stolen his gold bracelets. His female domestic ser- servant, Ferchis of the Barbari tribe, a tribe located on the border of Iran and Afghanistan, was accused of the crime. Under questioning, she confessed to everything. And this is her statement. What's great about this is that it's in her voice, and you rarely get to hear the voices of, of this segment of the population. Quote, a few days ago, I went to Mirza Hedayat's house on the pretense of asking how he was doing. I went up some stairs and entered a room where there were some golden bracelets which I took and sold for 16 tumans to Haji Abbas on Balakhiyaban. I then gave the money to my husband, Muhammad Ali Barbari. In the follow-up report, Ferchis was released on bail but on the condition that her husband would promise to prevent his wife from engaging in such criminal acts in the future. So by way of conclusion, I argue that everyday history of crime cannot be divorced from its spatial context. Within these spaces, conflicts occurred both between and among masters, apprentices, uh, soldiers and civilians, husbands and wives, tribes and settled populations, and rival artisans and merchants. Reports on crime related to pilgrimage and plunder of, uh, of, of livestock tell us about the margins of the city and how insider, outsiders became embroiled in uh, local, local kind of dynamics. Moral crimes such as drunkenness, debauchery, and gambling typically took place in public spaces like coffee houses and streets. Violent crimes stemmed from daily interactions in bazaars, the streets, and workshops, while thefts occurred in the entire gamut of urban spaces. Crimes occurring in the home grant us a great snapshot of domestic life that are otherwise inaccessible in the historical record. While the temporal focus of this project has been purposely limited, potential future research would tell us a bit more about how everyday experiences are connected to the history of events 
by demonstrating how and why ordinary people, like the people I've been talking about today, decide to join or not to join social movements at particular moments in time. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.